On the Record with Gavin Riley. Brought to you by PwC on News Talk. Let's just fire ahead with the front pages of today's newspapers. We'll start with the Business Post. State aid scheme to provide new electricity grants of up to 500,000 for struggling firms. Uh, We're told the government is preparing a state aid scheme that will allow businesses to apply for direct grants of up to half a million euro to offset the soaring cost of energy. Under the terms of the scheme, so-called energy-intensive businesses of all sizes will be able to apply for government supports from a minimum of 20,000 up to a maximum of 500,000, provided they can show evidence that their operating profits have declined by at least 15% as a direct result of energy costs. Just a little bit of insight as to what might be on the way uh, in the budget. Uh, Speaking of energy, though, Ireland's energy system is increasingly viewed as expensive, unpredictable and relatively high risk, the IDA has warned. Uh, It has made a hard-hitting submission, we're told, to the energy regulator in which it says that the unprecedented plans to introduce €100 million in emergency tariffs on certain large businesses will probably undermine Ireland's cost competitiveness and damage our reputation for foreign direct investment. To be honest, I'd imagine that the idea of uh, having the reputation of a country that's subject to blackouts might be enough of a a damage to our reputation all the same. Um, And also on the front page of the Business Post, this is fascinating. The pension fund of a British weapons dealer has sold its Irish residential portfolio to a Davy investment fund for a 15% profit less than a year after purchasing the homes in the first place. Uh, BAE Systems spent €14.4 million buying 43 second-hand properties in Ireland in 2021 through its pension fund. Uh, Records obtained by the Business Post show that the British weapons manufacturer then sold the properties in April of this year for €16.8 million to an investment fund controlled by Davy. That's a profit of €2.4 million, a 15% turnaround uh, in less than a year. They made an average of €50,000 profit on each of those units. That's the Business Post. Uh, the Sunday Times uh, leads today with some of the dilemmas being faced by businesses in Northern Ireland, particularly Derry, who are divided over whether they should close tomorrow for Queen Elizabeth's funeral. As you know, uh, Monday has been declared a national bank holiday in the UK, which means that ordinarily large retailers wouldn't be open um, in the north or indeed anywhere in Britain tomorrow. But there are several businesses in Derry who are under pressure not to shut. Uh, Musgrave Northern Ireland said yesterday that the Super Value store in Dungiven would remain open to staff who wish to continue to work. It had previously said the supermarket was going to close for three hours, but many employees vowed to continue working anyway. Uh, a free food facility in Dungiven has also said it will stay open to tomorrow to fulfil the needs of its community. That follows an appeal by the local Reverend Mark Loney, a local rector, um, who wrote to the Dungiven Regeneration Club asking it to close the centre during the funeral. Uh, One spokesperson said a lot of people need the food. Uh, It's hard to stay open in these hard times, uh, which is a a fascinating little microcosm of some of the debates which have been seen across Britain as well of several valuable public services like charities and food banks, which are shutting down for the day because it has now been declared as a public holiday. But of course, many service users still need their service anyway and just dealing with some of the ethical and political tightropes they have to walk. Um, Also on the front page of the Sunday Times this morning, carbon tax increases on fuel will go ahead on October the, the 12th despite conflict on the issue among senior coalition partners as you might know uh, from previous shows uh, Fine Gael had called for a delay to the planned rise in carbon tax which would mean that a 60 litre tank of petrol would go up by 128 and of diesel by 148 uh, but it's already uh, apparently now seems to be the case that, that is going to go ahead um, whether the government necessarily wants it or not partly because it is written into law and it might be too late to try and uh, pass a new law to amend that otherwise uh, the Sunday Independent uh, reveals the HSE's twindemic uh, winter warning. Apparently the health service in Ireland is braced for one of the worst winters in years with significant ri- uh, risks of a twindemic of the coronavirus and flu, staff shortages and unprecedented and sustained levels of unplanned hospital admissions, particularly among older people. The HSE has drafted a winter plan which has been leaked to the Sunday Independent. It reveals that the, the health service is preparing for as many as 17,000 COVID hospital admissions over the six months of winter, 700 of those in ICU. 
ICU, as many as 4,350 people could be admitted to the hospital with flu, 225 of those in ICU, according to one potential scenario on respiratory illnesses drawn up by the Health Protection Surveillance Centre. Uh, those uh, scenarios, if played out, could result in more than 900 people in intensive care over the winter period from the flu and from COVID-19 alone. It may be worth bearing in mind that although it is now broadly seen that uh, the Omicron variant of COVID-19 is far less um, significant or offers far lower grade of disease, uh, that simply the, simply the sheer numbers of people who may get infected as we all begin to stay inside for winter uh, might mean that a large number of people uh, will end up getting infected and even a small percentage of a large number um, is still a large number. Um, also very significantly on the front page of the Sunday Independent, Rolling blackouts of up to four hours duration could hit at least 125,000 house- households at a time. Excuse me, that is 125,000 households at a time uh, under secret government emergency plans which could come into effect in the event of a disruption to gas supplies this winter. Uh, the Sunday Independent has learned some details of a confidential emergency planning exercise which was held uh, over the last two Fridays. Um, it has found that at least 125,000 households could be hit with rolling blackouts at any one time for periods of between half an hour and up to four hours. The ESB would identify the first areas to face blackouts. Uh, concerns about food safety were raised by the Food Safety Authority because of retailer and supplier refrigeration units being shut down. Um, essential services such as major hospitals and National Guard and Defence and Transport would have to be prioritised but there would be significant disruption elsewhere. Financial services would not be protected so payment systems and ATM networks could be down because there's no power. Post offices in affected blackout systems wouldn't have access to IT so they might not be able to pay social welfare payments during blackouts and schools in affected areas would also lose their power supply uh, all of which is uh, another example as to why this uh, prospect of rolling blackouts is so significant. And finally for now, the Irish Mail on Sunday, uh, serving soldiers claim sex assaults. At least two serving members of the Defence Forces have told an inquiry that they were sexually assaulted on duty. The witnesses gave testimony to the independent review group which has been set up by Simon Coveney to examine if there is a culture of bullying and sexual harassment in the Defence Forces. This of course follows uh, the claims by the Women of Honour group who are alleging a culture of of harassment within the forces. Um, These people are among more than 100 witnesses who have approached the review to give evidence. Two witnesses alleged they were sexually assaulted on duty overseas. Others alleged they were physically assaulted and other witnesses alleged that they were targeted for speaking out. This weekend the Department of Defence refused to answer any questions about complaints made to that review group that is your uh, potted view of this morning's front pages uh, to discuss those pages those stories and more uh, we are joined by Rachel Iredale consulting director at RSM Ireland and also uh, making his debut on the programme this morning Peter Leonard who is a barrister and a presenter of the Business Post's Law on Trial podcast uh, you're both very welcome and thank you for coming on this morning um, we were going through the papers this morning and Rachel immediately one piece in the Business Post jumped out at you there is um, extensive coverage across all the papers this morning of the reports from the Commission on Taxation and Welfare which uh, reported earlier in the week uh, and there's a lot of coverage too about some of the political pushback there's been to some of those recommendations. You picked out a spread in the Business Post about its findings and what they mean for the government. Morning Gavin. Um, Any of your listeners who think they're going to sit back and have a snooze because tax is boring, I'd advise them to sit up and listen now. It was Benjamin Franklin I think who said there's nothing certain in life except death and taxes. Mm. Um, I'm I'm looking forward to you making taxes entertaining because they're generally not known for being the snazziest radio content Uh, but let's have a go. Let me preface the piece in the paper by saying Uh, Taxation and welfare are the two components that governments have at their disposal about um, really forging the social contract in society. So what do we owe each other? 
what do we pay into the common pool and how do we provide for our individual and collective needs. Government tried to look at tax in 2009, got quite a few things wrong, a lot of pushback on things like um, domestic charges for Mm. water, stuff like that. But there's a new commission which has reported this week, was led by a professor of law from the London School of Economics, Neve Maloney, and they've come up with a report called Foundations for the Future. And I think that's where we need to start this discussion on. Which is an important view to have then, because this isn't just necessarily coming up with, oh, this would be a good idea, that they're talking about the social pressures the state's going to face in the decades to come, and how do you go about making sure you're financed to deal with them? controvertible things the Irish population is getting bigger there's more of us and we're getting older and therefore younger people who are working and being taxed are going to be funding uh, the older population. So this report took a strategic approach to thinking about how we would make decisions going forward and it took a principles-based approach. So it wanted to try and promote economic activity, keep employment and improve prosperity, but we still need to look at how are we going to adequately resource public services. So how does the tax system Mm. support the key elements of public services, health, housing, education, decarbonisation, So of the 116 recommendations, I've picked out about six or seven that I think are going to be possibly controversial. But as I said, these are principle based and they're things that we're going to have to think about as a society collectively. Um, So number one is increasing the tax base. So we need to get more tax from things like capital and, and wealth. There's a lot of discussion about um, taxing things like road usage. So we've seen in Britain congestion charges in big cities. That's likely to come in. We've seen that there's a need to support uh, small and medium enterprises and businesses that focus on research and development. So tax breaks for those sorts of people. We've also looked at it also looks at things like a whole uh, second tier of child benefit for the poorest families in society. Again, okay. an issue we're so interested in. So it would remain in. universal, but that there'd be a higher tier there'd for those who need it most. There'd be a higher tier for those who need it most. And not necessarily people who uh, would be on social welfare payments, but there's some working families on very low incomes Mm. who might require that as well. Uh, We probably need to think about replacing the whole system of commercial rates, the taxation there. So one of the proposals is about a site value tax for land not covered by local property tax um, uh, uh, currently. And then another interesting thing was the notion of a tourist accommodation tax in Ireland. So if you've Mm. been on holiday to many European cities, for example, you'll quite often be asked to pay local taxes at the hotel when you book your your holiday. That's something that's being discussed as well. So it's all a very rounded, almost as if, you know, if you were starting from here, how would you draw up a tax system to fund the the country into the years and beyond? Now, this maybe didn't necessarily get a fair hearing because of the premature leaking of some of the recommendations, like, for example, uh, lowering the amount of the threshold for inheritance tax, that if you were to inherit a family home, for example, from a parent, you might have to pay a higher chunk of that Mm. as tax, which immediately then was leapt on by some political Mm. opponents of that idea, saying, oh, we're never going to do that. Mm. Leo Varadkar even said some of the ideas came from the Sinn Féin manifesto or looked like they were from the Sinn Féin manifesto. Do you think in that light then that all of this is going to get a fair hearing, given that even from the from before it was even published, you had some people in government saying that, well, some of this is so politically unpalatable, we're just never going to do it. So Michael Brennan, the political editor um, in the uh, the Business Post, goes through how uh, the various recommendations have been derided by cabinet ministers. I think that 30% proposal by uh, Leo Varadkar uh, probably... Um, 
he will let go of that notion if the tax breaks can be seen to be in other areas, for example. The big difference that that we're looking at here is tax has always been linked to income. Mm. Now we're trying to shift the conversation so that tax is linked to wealth and importantly, consumption. We all consume in different ways, whether we're consuming our roads. Um, So we've got to think about paying for tax in those areas. The, the words I think of when I when I read this report and they're in this article by Michael Brennan are it's going to be tough. It's going yeah. to be challenging. It's going to be unpopular. <laughs> uh, there's no positive words there. But I think we, n- nobody in yeah. our society can uh, uh, ignore this debate. Well, tough, challenging and unpopular, uh, Peter Leonard, I suspect, are not the way. Well, there, there might be ways that the government would like to frame a discussion if it just doesn't want to have to, to bite the bullet on any of this stuff. But if societally you have to make some t- tough decisions or if you're, you're being told the population will get to this level by X year and you need to have a certain amount of resources to pay for everything, you kind of have to grab the bull by the horns, oh, even absolutely. if a lot of this is unpopular. Absolutely. I mean, tax is the number one weapon that the state has in its armory. And it's it's the number one thing it can do in order to, I suppose, govern and provide for society. And society is growing. It's getting bigger. Uh, population increases, etc. The society has to provide the public services to go along with that. Uh, and therefore, you have to look at the tax base and you have to look at changes that are probably required uh, down the line. Um, uh, to be honest, I'm not an expert on tax, but I saw this article from Michael Brennan, which I think is really good. It's very comprehensive and he goes through a lot of the suggestions and, and stuff that I thought was that is going to have to come in with all these famous EV vehicles that we're going to have mm. on the roads. There's going to have to be a different form of excise uh, because so much you know, funding comes from petrol and from yeah. fossil fuels, yeah. etc. And mm. that's going to have to be replaced by, you know, if, if the taxes that are associated with electric mm. vehicles. Uh, but the one piece I really liked uh, was where he referred to uh, a house which has gone on the market. Yeah, uh, this was a, it, a fascinating yeah. example actually, yes. And he talked about a couple bought this for £165,000 in okay. 1984. That was a lot of money in 1984. Yeah. This is a I'm, I'm old enough to remember that. Uh, <laughs> but they're now putting it on the market for £5.5 5 Now, uh, because it's a family home, that money will go into their pocket mm. as such. So you don't pay any, would it be capital gains in that instance? Or no, you would wouldn't you? because but it's a family home, yeah. you know. Um, and yet the, the benefit that they've accrued over the years probably has been contributed to by the state and by all of us who all participate in this state. So uh, looking at things like that and property taxes, inheritance taxes mm. are very emotive. People get very upset about these well, things. Which is probably then um, why we had Leo Varadkar jumping out and saying, you know, th- there's been a, pr- a concerted effort by governments in recent years to raise the threshold for inheritance tax if you're uh, the child uh, of someone who's just deceased because a lot of people would say if you own if you're an only child and your parents owned a family home in the greater Dublin area and it was worth 400,000 that it would be inconceivable that a time when you've just lost your last surviving parent and you're inheriting the family home that you could you could potentially be then hit with a tax bill yes. for for tens of thousands which would seem very unfair in that light but you seem to, you and, and Rachel both seem to be of the view that well, individual cases are, are all well and good, but you kind of need to revise the whole thing overall. You will always have hardship cases. And a case like that, let's say somebody is living in the house and then therefore has to pay mm. a premium, maybe has to borrow money in order to inherit their family house. That That, that is difficult. Mm. But at the end of the day, society has to be paid for. And you can't base it all on income tax. You can't base it all on VAT. You have to look at these areas mm. where money is generated and take some of that in, in the interest of the state. 
do either of you think that Ireland is set up a to to allow changes like that to happen because we just sort of live in the sort of country where there are plenty of fora where somebody who gets hit with something that they might consider personally unjust to get a lot of media coverage and to win a lot of public sympathy for hardship cases like that. Like for example, if someone inherited their parents' house for four hundred thousand and had to go and borrow tens of thousands um, to, to pay the tax bill of it for nothing of their own doing. But also, if you're talking about how Rachel, how all this could be you know, difficult and challenging and how it won't be easy, et cetera, et cetera. That at a time when, you know, there's might be a recession coming down the line and we might be looking at rolling energy blackouts because of poor infrastructure and, and plenty of other reasons why people are, are irked with the state of the world, cost of living and everything else. You could argue that there was almost never a worse time to try and be tackling like real reforms like this. Possibly goes back to my first point about having a national conversation about what is important to us in the social contract. You know, what services should we be providing universally? Should Mm. there be a universal basic income, for example? What should be free at the point of use in society? The reduction in... um, you know, tax breaks for people with private insurance, that's likely to reduce as we move into slauncher care. And all of those debates about what what do we do together collectively and what do we do individually? And I think the example that Peter just gave gave about the house, um, because we're drifting into the housing debate then now, you know, uh, a family home where the parents have died then becomes a vacant home, for example, whilst you move through probate and stuff like Mm. that. And then you drift into the whole notion of how long should we leave our homes vacant? You know, how quickly can we move those processes? Mm. We have another story in the Sunday Business Post about those vacant home grants and what people will be allowed to do in the future f- for those sorts of issues. So yeah. it's um, it's going to be a difficult few years, I think, yeah. to have some of these discussions. Uh, somebody's texted in a, a text free tax. Elephants, it's our elephants in the room, tax room is how the low paid are still excluded from the universal social charge. I think they're taking issue with the fact that it's described as universal when it is no longer universal. Mm-hmm. And couple that with the golden goodbyes already extravagantly paid public services get when retiring. I think there's also an observation in this, Peter, or maybe it's not in this, that you can get a lump sum of up to €200,000 when you're retiring from certain public roles and still end up then not paying any tax on that lump sum at all, which again seems like a fairly hefty chunk of change to be getting into your hand without any tax at all. I can't sort of comment on that because I don't really know. But I mean, there's always been an issue in relation to public servants and the healthy goodbye money that they get at Mm. the end of when they they qualify for their pension. Look, I mean, it's it's very sensitive. You know, tax is always going to be a difficult topic, uh, but it is a necessary social evil. And, you know, it's, it's a good thing, I think, that this tax commission has had a look at things, has put out proposals. You're talking about proposals that are going to come into effect if they're implemented by government over a period of 10 to 15 years. Uh, We need to think about these things. Our politicians will never bring in the likes of a wealth tax because it will affect our millionaires and politicians. They just won't do it, uh, which is... Well, I suppose when you look at the, the, the percentage of uh, people in the Dáil who are landlords and how uh, disrepresentative or unrepresentative that is of society at large, maybe there is a case that they won't do uh, anything that will uh, hurt themselves. Uh, you're both right, though. It is an interesting uh, discussion that, and one that needs to be had, albeit maybe not that the government would like to be having it in the teeth of a budget, but I suppose there is never an ideal time to talk about taxing people for more. Uh, some more texts coming in. How about an in-depth review about how taxpayers' money is currently spent on the provision of public services? Will more money fix the health service, for example, and would proper performance management reviews be introduced for public servants uh, which is a discussion that we might get to when we have the uh, junior minister uh, Oshin Smith with us after 12 o'clock he's talking about how public services might be going online and the need to get some public input on that but we might get to that with him but before we talk about all of that uh, I want to talk to a 
our reporter JJ Clark um, JJ uh, for his sins got sent to Garth Brooks uh, his final gig of the run of five in Croke Park last night and to a prior press conference uh, JJ I don't know whether you were a Garth Brooks disciple before you went but uh, how do you feel now having seen the performance in the flesh I was thoroughly impressed so like I had no idea of his back catalogue of songs before I attended the uh, the concert last night it was you know, amazing. Even the press conference beforehand, he comes in, he's a six foot two, an imposing figure. He's calling all the journalists by names, like really personable. And, you know, in terms of the, you know, the the um, fans that came on, there was like everyone was decked out in the regalia, the Stetson hats, the checkered shirts. And he was asked at the very beginning of the press conference, will you return to Ireland as an artist? And he said, it's all I want to do. But he said the last thing that he wants is for the Irish people to be rolling their eyes and saying to themselves, oh, it's Garth Brooks again. So he doesn't want to burn the audience. <laughs> uh, I'm not sure if there, maybe Ireland is the one country where that may not happen, but I suppose there's probably a large percentage of the public who might already be rolling their eyes. But hadn't he said, what wasn't the point of, of this run of stadium shows in Croke Park and the fact that it was a bespoke stage for the one venue, this hadn't been used elsewhere on his tour, wasn't the whole premise that these were supposed to be his final ever stadium shows? And now he's already opening the door open to coming back. Right, well, I think just uh, on the back of that, it's the 2014 cancelled date that gave everyone the sense. All the fans kind of had a, like, had the general thought that it was kind of Woodstock feel that it was the last time that this was going to happen. But he said, it's all I want to do. I'm going, uh, like, I'm going to come back, you know, uh, I am going to come back on holidays here in the near future, but I really want to come back here as an artist. Uh, this is the place to come. Uh, he did seem to pick out a particular role model then for someone who he'd use as his template where he might come back not only to Croke Park but also maybe get out on the road and play some more shows around the country. Yes, so he, he cited Ed Sheeran. He said he liked uh, the Ed Sheeran model of two nights here, two nights there. He he waxed lyrical about Limerick and returning there. And so he, he really wants to not just do a straight run of shows. And he, he commented as well on the fact that he he had a break in his show. So he did three shows, then he had a break until Friday, and then he did the two final shows. So he's keen to split it up next time, which is really interesting. Even just, uh, I suppose, if you look at the ticket sales, 400,000 ticket sales. I was outside the uh, concert venue before the presser, and I I must have been asked about five or six times, do you have tickets? So there was a a want even, you know, outside of those 400,000 tickets. That's, twice the population of Meath. It's incredible. Uh, that's I don't know what that says about me or what it says about the demand for, for Garth Brooks tickets um, I know you and I are, are only from a couple of miles apart so I'm, I'm just amazed that you grew up without knowing much of his back catalogue because I certainly had a lot of it thrown in my ears uh, you were speaking to some of the fans on the way into last night's final show of this run of five let's have a listen to what they had to say uh, just outside Belfast Ballymon Ballymon uh, Sligo from Cork Newry in Northern Ireland oh, Tullamore Offaly Belfast yeah, Belfast and Donald. Uh, how was the gig tonight? Amazing. Brilliant. Amazing. Oh, Last amazing. Saturday was better, but tonight was good. Fantastic. Out of this world. Uh, unbelievable, wasn't it, Claire? <laughs> Fantastic. Very good. Very good. Really enjoyable. And horse. <laughs> fantastic. Absolutely fantastic. Amazing. Absolutely brilliant. Yeah. Yeah. It was really oh, good. Unreal. It was slow to start off with, like, I feel like all the good songs came near the end. But it was good. It was good. It was good. Though. It was good. It was fantastic. Very big fans of Garth Brooks. I thought it was bleeding great. 
I just, especially like Shallow and all. Do you know when if tomorrow never comes, them songs? But I thought it was great. Uh, the one thing that's really striking about that, JJ, is the amount of people who've come clearly from outside of the usual commuting area to Croke Park. This really has been almost something of a pilgrimage for many people, which I suppose means that if you were to get around provincial venues and play much more grounds around Ireland, that you know there might be a serious crowd of people who'd be maybe turned off by the idea of commuting to Dublin or having to play a hotel room, but who'd be delighted to see him in a stadium closer to them. Yeah, I mean, I was struck by that. Even just the queue of buses on Jones's Road just outside Croke Park. And even... If you like, and if you look at the county representation, it was Down, it was Donegal, it was Tipperary, it was Cork. They were all commuting large distances, and a lot of uh, people were coming with their families. Like I spoke to a few people that had their kids with them, so it was, it was a really, you know, friendly crowd. Country, like I was speaking to a lot of uh, families, asking, you know, is Country Western alive and well? And they were saying, of course, yeah. And this is the Elvis Presley of Country Western. Uh, Garth Brooks, he is the second most lucrative uh, country and western singer in the world. He's pipped slightly by Shania Twain. Um, will he be paying in Park Talton next time? And if so, will you, will you be making your way now that you might be a disciple of his ways? Well, yeah, as a as a proud mead man, like it's only 20 minutes up the road, so I definitely will. I was there and it, even just the light show, Friends in Low Places, the pyrotechnics at, at the end, he really holds the crowd. And then uh, when I went outside the venue afterwards, there was a, a load of Crow Park, uh, you know, in the you know vicinity, a load of residents outside their homes just listening to, because you could hear it p- pitch perfect word for word, every song. Uh, impressive stuff. Uh, JJ Clark, our reporter who was at the Garth Brooks gig last night. Uh, some people get all the luck getting sent to, to gigs like that. JJ, thanks for giving us a bit of a, the lowdown on uh, what went on. And uh, I suppose I'll see you in the pit at Park Tolton the, the next time he's back. Uh, JJ Clark uh, giving us the lowdown and all of that. Still joined in the studio by Rachel Iredale and Peter Leonard. None of the three of us were at any of the five gigs, which must make us a pretty unusual selection of, of people in Ireland, given how, how basically the world and his mother seems to have gone to at least one of these gigs. Sister went, had an absolute ball. They said it was superb. Though I do own a pair of cowboy boots, so I'm halfway there for the next visit. <laughs> okay, Peter, will you be borrowing Rachel's cowboy boots well, for next time? Maybe not, but last week I had, uh, I was driving back with my son from a match and we were coming through Drum- Drumcondra mm. and I suddenly, it kind of dawned on me how huge this was because I saw the crowds of people with the Stetson hats and the cowboy boots and all dressed up. The sun was shining. The atmosphere was absolutely fantastic. Now, I mightn't have bought a ticket uh, when they were released back in the day. Yeah. But when I saw that, I said, God, that would be fantastic to go to. I would love to have gone. I, I genuinely loved to have gone. I thought I would have FOMO over the whole thing because I did, had no interest in buying them at the time. And I fully thought that when the, the gigs were coming up, that I'd be like, oh, God, I really wish I'd stumped up for the tickets now because it seems like this thing that everyone mm. is going to. And I didn't really feel like I missed out in a huge amount. And then you talk to JJ and he's saying oh, how great it was. And basically, you can't it, I can't think, meet I think he's a great performer. Yeah. I think it sounds from your Vox Pop there. Everybody was delighted with the performance. I think he delivered. You know, there was Mm. great anticipation. The fact that he's going to come back in a short period of time, that mightn't happen, Mm. guys, because remember 2014, the fiasco with the the five shows that Mm. were arranged for Crow Mm. Park on that occasion. It took, you know, what, eight years Mm. to to rectify that. So he might be back anytime soon. Yeah, but Um, again, this was supposed to be the culmination of his last ever stadium tour, so maybe he'll have a a little bit more time in his hands where if he only basically wants to gig in Ireland and nowhere else, then he'll basically be doing a residency. He's getting the love in Ireland, doesn't he? 
They'll be doing a residency in Markovich Park in Semple Stadium. Yeah. Basically, he'll be the, the greatest boon to the GAA since the introduction of the back door in 2001. Um, let's talk more about some stories that are in the papers. Um, well, I, was, I was particularly struck, I don't know how either of you felt about it, um, about a piece on page two of the Sunday Times. Aoife Moore is reporting about the percentage of new homes that have been delivered, um, particularly in Dublin, but across the country, in the first couple of months of this year, which have been bought up by investment funds. Now, people might not be all that struck about the numbers in Dublin. There were 2,146 housing completions in Dublin in the first three months of the year. 68% of them bought by investors. That maybe is, you know, chilling to some people, but may not be all that surprising. What I was more surprised about, uh, Rachel, was the fact that there were 59 new properties completed in Kilkenny in the first three months. And 64% of them were bought by funds. 58 properties were completed in Monaghan and 60% of them were bought by funds. This is no longer just merely an urban problem. This is something where individual householders or families that are looking to, to buy their own homes are getting muscled out everywhere in the country. I think, yeah, that's correct. Uh, as you probably know, Gavin, I've worked in the construction industry for a few Actually, years. I didn't know that. I did did not, not, no, know. it was one of your hats I wasn't uh, aware of. Uh, uh, instead of being at a desk, I used to be wearing a hard hat and a high-vis jacket. The construction industry generally is subject to, obviously, rising cost of inflation, but also um, labour. is There's a shortage of labour and the cost of construction materials over the last few years. It's going to be quite clear that the government will miss its housing targets. They uh, There's a, a, another report in another paper, quite a number of the papers are covering mm. the housing issue today. Yeah, Business Post says it's going to yeah. be revising its targets again yeah. this year, yeah. But the, what's really surprising is that um, the local authority over the next five years is going to run out of land in terms of the land it has available to build on houses. Um, in 2021, um, a new group was set up, the Dublin Housing Delivery Group was set up to really try and look at the coordination of social and affording uh, affordable housing in four different Dublin local authorities and try and track the progress of the government's Housing for All initiatives. And basically what it's saying is within the next five years, all of Dublin's local authorities will run out of land on which to develop social and affordable housing. And I think what you've just raised there is part of the problem. Another aspect of the problem is the the state is specifically trying to target some of those developers in Dublin who are sitting on unactivated planning permissions. There's also the whole issue about, you know, um, own door type properties versus uh, apartments and that that sort of issue as Mm. well. Uh, So really the viability of what's going to happen in housing over the coming years is going to be quite problematic. Many of the newspapers are picking up on stories of the lack of accommodation for students. Mm. Uh, We're going to come later to higher education, but certainly the numbers of students who are starting or should be starting university in the next couple of weeks and have nowhere to live uh, is going to be quite problematic. Yeah, I think I saw one piece in one of today's papers, a a, a first-hand story of somebody who was finding struggle for student accommodation and they said they were charged or they were quoted 1,200 quid a month for five-day digs, Mm. uh, which, like, imagine paying 1,200 euro a month and then not even having Mm. the luxury of living there at weekends. Just extraordinary, the shortage is going on. Sorry to interrupt you. I was just going to say the other uh, story that we referenced early was uh, the revamp of the grant for vacant homes. So the government has put aside... Um, 
50 million, I think it is, to try and revamp that vacant property grant. So it's going to try and bring something like up to 2,000 homes back into play Mm. uh, over the next two to three years by giving people that £50,000 grant. There's something like 92,000 vacant properties currently in Ireland, which is just shocking when you think of the number of people who require housing. Um, It's not not available nationwide. That's the problem. If you're a fan of that TV series of cheap Irish homes, basically the idea that you could get €50,000 given to you to help bring a property back up to scratch uh, might be a a very attractive one because certainly um, there's a lot of properties out there if you're prepared to put in the legwork to bring them back up to speed. Um, Peter, I hadn't spotted that when I was going through the papers, but the idea that the Dublin authorities could literally run out of places to build any new housing within a couple of years is is mind-boggling. Well, apparently some of the land that they have, there are difficulties in obtaining planning and they're not suitable and etc, etc. I mean, I think the government has a plan to build houses and local authorities have plans to build houses and often stumbling blocks come in the way and there are issues and therefore they can't uh, complete what they've said they're going to do. Uh, And there seems to be a problem with land and they need to obtain more land. I thought one of the striking features of that article when I looked at it was that Dublin City Council uh, in the first three months of this year have not completed one local authority home. Mm. Now, other local authorities have, I think South Dublin County Council and down Dublin Council County Council have a much be- better record. But I mean, it's it's we're talking about, you know, investors snapping up these new bills. Uh, one way to guarantee that, you know, the state holds onto these houses is for the local authority to kind of produce them themselves. Now, I know the local authority is engaged in buying properties yeah. uh, from from private developers, mm. etc. But yeah, there is a shortage uh, of property. And I suppose that brings in the other point uh, that Rachel made about this €50,000 grant for mm. uh, revamping of uh, derelict properties. Yeah, so it's currently available in urban centres. Yeah, urban centres. Yeah. And I think there's 92,000 uh, houses and I think that they're in towns of more than 500 people. Yeah. So you're talking then about rural properties on top of that. And I love that show. You mentioned that yeah. show, Cheap Irish Homes. I think yeah. that's one of the best things I've ever seen on TV where the two of them head off and they find these wonderful mm. derelict properties in the middle of nowhere. And there's always a positive the engineer that they have is fantastic you can always say well no the the roof is solid enough and if we just put a bit of money into that 50,000 would go a long way Mm. so we have to come up with creative solutions and that's also a way of regenerating our towns and villages and making them look good Uh, you know 50,000 that's a very good initiative I think we need to Uh, to endorse that we need to relax the rules a little bit currently the rules are the house has to be vacant for more than two years it has to be built before 1993 uh, and it's the grant's only really available to people who are going to live in that house so not for an investor or a landlord. It seems a little bit short-sighted to mm. you know, put those well, sorts of regulations around. You have to around. pay the money back if you sell it within yeah. three years. Yeah. Only three quarters if you sell it up to 10 years. And after 10 years, you can pocket the lot. Yeah. So um, there you go. Texture to 53106 says that it shows how middle class the staff of News Talk are if they can't see that somebody inheriting a 400,000 euro house and not paying any tax on it at all is unjust. What about all the poorer people who never get any inheritance and can't afford to buy a house, which is a, a reasonable prospect. I think when I was trying to channel that argument about a whole 400,000 home, I was offering the political stance as articulated by the government. No, but it is a fair point. Many people listening sort of saying that those in Dublin have it well. Well, if they're looking at a, a modest tax bill on a home worth 400000 when there's plenty of others who can't get any at all. Um, before I go to an ad break, there's a few bits dotted around the place about the prospective return to Fianna Fáil of Bertie O'Hurry. Um, Peter, uh, <laughs> have at it. What, yeah, what are your well, thoughts on the prospective I mean, I think, return? Well, it's sort of 
Bertie Ahern has kind of been rehabilitated, if that's maybe not an unfair comment to make. I mean, I think, you know, if you go all the way back to the famous Mahan Tribunal and the dig out and the whip around and Paddy the Plaster and all of that, uh, you know, Bertie's reputation was tarnished, but he was still in power at the time. And then when the, the Mahan Tribunal reported, there wasn't that many gloves landed upon him. Uh, but I think he was more a victim of the financial crisis and people blamed him for not anticipating that mm. and for the issues that that, that arose. Uh, and I think he got a bit of a hard time after that. I mean, I think there was anecdotal evidence of when he went to go for a pint in his famous Fagan's pub or in, in the Beaumont house, he was getting a hard time. But in recent years, he has suddenly re-emerged on the airwaves mm. and his expertise in relation to the North and, you know, his insights in relation to that uh, have, have, have become very prevalent. Uh, and I noticed somewhere that uh, in relation to the North itself, there were back-channel communications with himself and his old pal, Tony Blair, who kind of had a similar kind of difficult time post his, yeah. his success in politics. So but, my but, view but is that... Wasn't, wasn't quite tied up in the same, you know, the, the, he wasn't mired by the same tribunal sort of findings as Bertie Hearn was, where although it never found him to have acted corruptly, that, no. it, it, that it manifestly rejected some of the accounts he gave about the origins of lodgements to his own bank account. Yes, and you which know, is money a pretty significant thing, and, and, and something that, that doesn't necessarily go away by virtue of him being an expert in something else that's become well, topical does it, since. Does it not go away? I mean, at the end of the day, I mean, that was a finding that was made what, 10, 14 years ago. Mm. Um, you know, I'm a great believer in rehabilitation. I mean, Bertie did the state some service. I'm not a Fianna Fáiler, so I'm not, I'm not ad- 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 mm. advocating. I-, I was associated with another party, so I'm, I'm, I'm not a Fianna Fáiler. But I do think he did the state some service, certainly in relation to the Good Friday Agreement. Uh, and, he, you know, there, there, there's a, that, that was a very important contribution. I think he served his time in the wilderness. If he is making a contribution, I mean, the, the papers report that Simon Coveney, for example, has regular chats with them about Northern Ireland and about trying to get advice in relation to dealing with the parties in the North etc mm. and solutions I mean if we are relying on him for advice in terms of the government etc why can't Fianna Fáil put the grief behind him and let him become a member again uh, We do have to get to a break Rachel but very quickly if you can I was just going to say I was conscious of what he said in an interview last year marking his 70th birthday he said I'll see what state I'm in in 2025 at the moment I'm very busy at home and busy abroad mm. God knows what will happen in the future Well, I will just very cynically observe that if he wants to or if he would be open to rehabilitation within Fianna Fáil because he wants to contest the presidency in 2025 I dare say that the present leader of Fianna Fáil may also end up having an interest in contesting the presidency in 2025 and they both can't run as party candidates so I do wonder uh, whether uh, there might be something of an informal roadblock in the way. Um, I suspect that there'll be quite a few people listening this morning who may not have the same level of sympathy for Bertie Hearn who may acknowledge his work in trying to bring peace and power sharing to Northern Ireland but who would still find it very difficult to overlook the controversies around which he ended up having to resign from Fianna Fáil in the first place do just let us know your thoughts uh, 53106 for your texts on the record NT is our hashtag more from the papers with Peter and Rachel after this 11.51 on the record Gavin Riley with you till 1 o'clock this lunchtime on News Talk 53106 for your texts on the record NT is our hashtag on Twitter where one user is particularly exercised that I'm not spending the entire show talking about political corruption um, look at I'm, I'm as exercised about political corruption as anyone else but I think this particular correspondent uh, thinks that some elements of uh, failures in public office are the result of corruption and not just the result of plain incompetence uh, maybe that's a debate for another time uh, still joined in the studio by Barrister Peter Leonard and Rachel Ardell of Ars 
Maritime Consulting. Um, Rachel, you are uh, among your many hats. First of all, I didn't know that you once wore a hard hat as well as your many other hats. You've spoken on this programme before about being a magistrate as well as everything else. Um, you, you'd have quite the memoir. I'd, I'd listen to your audiobook. Um, but you mentioned that you're a visiting professor at the University of South Wales. I know you used to, to reside there full time. So you're particularly interested in a piece on page four of the Sunday Times about um, what appears to be a pretty significant grade inflation, not at leaving cert level, but rather at third level. Yes, uh, the bit of research has emerged now that's showing that the uh, debate that we have about grades inflating at leaving cert level is drifting on into uh, third level. Uh, Peter, I think, is going to discuss this in greater detail. But yes, I'm a visiting professor at the University of South Wales. And over the last 10 years or so, we've seen a real shift in the students coming into the university, uh, viewing themselves like customers we pay our fees, can we have our degree? And the the way that students have approached universities and their journey through university mm. has very much uh, changed. Many, many more people uh, entering universities and a lots of pressure within universities to um, give out higher grades. The proportion of students, I think University of Galway has mentioned in the piece, getting yeah. first class honours now is not proportionate to the skills and the abilities of those students. Yeah, so there's a useful um, infographic that's attached to this piece uh, by Bo Donnelly in the Sunday Times. It points out that in 2015, uh, 17.7% of people coming out of uh, um, honours degree course, which basically a level eight standard bachelor or, or parallel or uh, comparable course, 17.7% came out with a first class honours in 2015 and over the subsequent years it's gone to 18% then to 18.7 then to 19.1 then to 20.6 then to 24.3 and as of last year it stood at 27.9 which meant that over a quarter of all people who were enrolling in a bachelor's degree or equivalent were coming out with a first class honour and that does seem on the face of it Peter that of course you know everyone wants it to come out with an honour and you'd be delighted it does seem somewhat inexplicable it seems crazy it seems crazy I mean and and uh, because, look, you'd imagine universities, I mean, academic standards, etc., etc. So you'd imagine that the grading that is done within those will be reflective of the fact not every student is an A student. We all know that. But you can you can get a qualification uh, and that qualification is sufficient to take you on. And then there's other skills come into play beyond education so people can have good careers and be successful over the years. But, I mean, a first class honours degree is something that should be a rare achievement. Mm, yeah. 27.9%. It to me, it sounds like a bit of a joke, and uh, uh, it's it's it, the curious thing here is that there was a lot made of grade inflation in relation to the leaving cert, mm. and we're not doing leaving cert students any favours by giving them mm. false grades. I think you know, I mean, if if you get a good leaving cert, uh, and that involved, I mean, I was talking to somebody here recently, and they were talking about how they had to get the fourth honour in order to get the county council scholarship. Mm. Um, yeah. You know, like are the grant. I mean, there's the, in the good old days, a number of honours was a good mm. leaving cert now it's mega points mm. and uh, people are getting mega points that maybe aren't really mm. the best in the mm. class um, John so, Brennan so, who, from, from Anuth University who's a regular panellist in this programme as well has suggested that there might be in fact a lot of people getting 2-1 degrees who in his words are functionally illiterate and he really wonders what statement. employers are experiencing when students with these ostensibly mm. very good degrees go out into the working environment. Now, it, it's it's a big statement, I'm sure. Like, it's I'm probably, sure it's, it might be slightly unfair, but I well, think... Well, it's not one you'd say flippantly either. But yeah, just, no, maybe yeah. maybe not. But I thought the irony in this case was that Professor Kieran O'Hogarthick, who came out and went on the airwaves and made a really good case as to why grade of inflation in the Leaving Cert wasn't doing uh, students any favour mm. favours. He is the president of UCG. I, I'm, I'm a yes. past graduate of UCG. I did, I did a postgraduate course there yeah. once upon a time. They weren't given that many 
first in those days. <laughs> but uh, I noticed 30 percent of students in UCG got first class honours. Mm. It just doesn't yeah. make sense to me. It just e- doesn't. And it devalues the degrees that people are taking yeah. forward. There is nothing mm. wrong with a good old fashioned 2-2 degree. There's nothing mm. wrong with a 2-1. Mm. You don't need a first mm. You know, and that's more reflective of people's mm. abilities. Rachel? The ecosystem of higher education has changed, though, in the last 10 years or so. There's huge status put on league tables in terms of what students are achieving. Also, the employment contracts for academics now have moved away from permanent contracts to, you know, fixed term yeah. interim contracts. So there and the appeal systems for students to appeal their grades have got more sophisticated as well. And that article does mention, I'm not suggesting this happens, but it does mention cheating, you you know, there's whole businesses growing up now who yeah. will write essays and things. So the the ecosystem in its entirety needs to be yeah, looked at. There is a fascinating piece as a sidebar to that page about essay mills and how it's becoming a little bit easier yeah. maybe to, to get through uh, some some uh, obligations that colleges put in front of you. Um, a lot of people not impressed with the idea of rehabilitating Bertie O'Hearn. Are you kidding me that a minister for finance and accountant who didn't have a bank account might be ready to come back into public life, says one person. Um Another person is just very, very uh, upset about that. Uh, someone else says, what was the point of the Mahan Tribunal to send Fianna Fáil, uh, send Bertie to Fianna Fáil purgatory for a decade and then have him back? What did the tribunal cost? Somebody else says, if Bertie's coming back, then why not bring back Ray Burke, put him in charge of the energy crisis between them? They can negotiate with the energy companies to give away our oil and gas resources to somebody else for a better deal. Um, a lot of people not impressed, but I am going to have to leave it there. Peter Leonard, Rachel Iredale, thanks very much for coming in studio to go through everything in today's papers. On the record with Gavin Riley. Sunday morning at 11. Brought to you by PwC. Great minds think unalike. Different skill sets, diverse opinions, it all adds up to the new equation. On News Talk.